Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight is the beginning of Season 2, and we talk about two towns that are linked by the same ideology. Tonight, it's Steel, Illinois, and Adelphi, Texas. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of Small Town Secrets. Season 2 is going to be pretty much like Season 1. I'm just going to throw in some new music here and there and a couple of other little things that will be upgrades to the show. Speaking of which, I have upgraded the studio just a little bit. Uh, Before, I was using my iPad to put notes on. I'm not a big fan of uh, rustling paper on the mic. So I use an application called Agenda, which pretty much organizes and runs the entire show. It's got 
all the notes on it. It's got all the news stories on it. It's got all the listener stories on it. It's got all the future ideas on it. It's it's the backbone of this entire thing. And I used to use that on my iPad. My iPad was one screen, and my computer was, my MacBook was second screen. But I have put an actual monitor in here so that I can have a two-monitor, like, extended setup. Uh, makes it better for research. It gives me a much better office space to work off of. And now I can use uh, the big monitor for uh, recording the show and editing the show and using my MacBook as essentially what the iPad was for then. One of the big reasons for it was, it's really stupid, but this is why, uh, I had I got in a bad habit of not making sure the MacBook was charged, so I'd come down here to do the episode, and I'd flip over to the cover of the MacBook and be like, oh, it's dead, and now i got to plug it in, and find a plug for it, and find room for its cord, and let it boot up, and after doing that about three to four times, it just got really annoying, so I was like, you know what, we have an old monitor in the back, uh, let's dig that out, and see how it goes. I got that. I got the keyboard from an old Mac Mini that we don't use anymore and a nice little hub to plug it all in. So now I'm only plugging in like one thing into my computer instead of like uh, four, three. So it's working out pretty well. Uh, there's some adjustments to be made, but we'll see how it goes. The second thing is, and this is still very early in the planning stages, I am going to be working on Patreon. Uh, I'm not going to put any concrete date out yet onto when it's going to be ready and when it's going to be coming. I, I just don't know. I'm going to get it to where I want it to be, and then I will start dropping more information about it. But I, I kind of know. I mean, I know what I want in it. Uh, we're going to do some extra shows. We're going to make some music available. We're going to do some buttons. We're going to do some stickers, things like that. But when I get everything... Uh, finalized artwork and plans for it. I will bring out more information on that as as we go along. But those are the two big notes for the beginning of Season 2. We did delay this episode by one night, but that's okay. This is an indie podcast. Sometimes it happens, but I do try to stick to a schedule, and I will try to stick to the schedule as hard as I can going into Season 2. Um, we're going to get into... Something I wanted to talk about a long time ago. The thing is, is it takes... It's so weird because I plan out these episodes pretty early in advance. Like, I already have... One, two, three, four, five, six... Eight of the ten episodes for this season already planned out what I want to do. So after a while, you kind of forget which ones are coming up until you look at the look at the app and go, Oh, this is this, is this episode, and then... You know, like, I'd probably planned to do this episode back in, I don't know, June or something like that. And now it is here. But we're going to talk about two little towns, very small towns. In fact, season two might be, like, showrunner for, let's see how small of a town we can get. Because these two are pretty small. I've got another episode coming up that also has a small town. And actually, I figure if I ever do, a, like, an episode on ghost towns... Those are probably win because their population would be, well, zero. But tonight we're going to talk about Stell, Illinois, and Adelphi, Texas. And these are two towns, tiny towns, that were started by the same man. You could you could call it a cult. Um, I don't know if you want to go that far with it. You could call it 
just a group of people who believe in something, which I guess is a cult. But we're going to see how both of these places got started and how they're still around today and how their ideologies are very different from one another. Uh, Stella, Illinois, and Adelphi, Texas are coming up. But, f- but first, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Dirty Knees Soap Company. I'm going to make, I think it's just a little little promo for the next episode. It won't be too long, but it'll get the point across. Um, I've been using this stuff since oof, almost a year now. Since I think oof, September or October of last year, I use the bar soap, I use the beard oil, and I use the hand lotion and I, I do it all in the Minnesota Woods scent, and it's great stuff. Uh, if you get a chance, check them out. You can go to Dirty Knees Soap. You can go to their website, uh, Dirty Knees Soap Company. Just Google it. Or go to uh, stscast.com. You can click on the support tab, and you can click through my site to get it to theirs. And if you use uh, the code STSCAST at checkout, I believe you get 10% off of your purchase, and then I will get credit for you doing a said purchase. So uh, get on there, stop stinking, and help out the show all at the same time. The Dirty Knees Soap Company. Check them out, please. And uh, we're also going to play a promo from another Big Heads Media podcast. This uh, this week is time-sensitive, so let's uh, give them a listen, give them some support, and we'll be back with Stell, Illinois, and Adelphi, Texas. You have to watch it. It's so good. It was all right. Your friends may have decent taste in movies, but their incoherent reviews are getting annoying. I don't know. I just didn't like it. Looking for a new podcast? Join Time Sensitive, where we break down the recent movies you've heard of, but may have missed. Spoilers included. And we get it. You're busy and can't see everything, but are you really going to track it down a year later? We take the time so you don't have to. Find us on Twitter, at TSMoviePod, and find out what we're watching. I'm Sam. I'm Ian. And I'm Kate, and we're three friends and armchair movie critics. Seriously, invite us into your living room. Kate, stop. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Time sensitive, because you deserve better. And we are back, or I am back. I don't know why I say we. I'm the only one here. Well, there's a cat, and I'm going to apologize. I'm, he's a little rambunctious tonight, but I think he's calmed down. But every once in a while, I might hear the uh, pitter-patter of cat feet. He's a seven-pound cat that weighs 100 pounds, so he's not very graceful on his feet. But enough about the cat. We're going to talk about a couple of small towns, like we always do. We're going to start with Stell, Illinois, and I think we're going to start right this second. Located close to Chicago in Rogers Township, Illinois, is a small town known as Stell, S-T-E-L-L-E. The town's population is around 100 or so. Today, it's a very different type of place than you would normally see. The residents maintain their own telephone and internet services, and I'd actually be kind of curious to see just how good their internet uh, service is. I bet it's actually fantastic. Like, I bet it's better than anything that we're getting. But um, they also have their own water treatment plant, their own solar power and wind power. Like, today, it's a tight-knit community focusing on sustainable living. However, that hasn't always been the community's purpose. Stell was founded in 1972 by the Stell Group. The organization was headed by Richard Kyinger. Richard Kyinger was a follower of the Lemurian philosophy. And in the 1950s, he belonged to the Lemurian Fellowship out in Ramon, California, until he was kicked out. Why? Because Kyinger started using his own ideas about Lemuria. Actually, I'm speculating a little bit. That's why I think he was actually kicked out. The official reason 
was uh, for plagiarism. He claimed that he was in contact with the races of aliens, and I think also um, humans, like a mixture. In 1963, Kellinger wrote a book about his philosophies and experience called The Ultimate Frontier. He wrote this book under the pen name, I'm going to try to pronounce this pen name, but it is completely made of babble, I think. Uh, Ikal Kasuna, maybe. The book would go on to sell over 250,000 copies, attracting many to Kylander's cause. Because of the success of the book, he was able to quickly found the Stell Group, and in 1973, he would purchase land in Ford County, Illinois, and construction began on Stell. Uh, I have the book. You can get the book. Actually, it's gone up. Uh, I think I bought it a while back. I got it for like two bucks off Amazon. Like, an original copy, too. You know, some book from that. You know, it's, it's a book. It's a 1963 UFO contact ebook. So it's a little dense. It's a little dry. Uh, I didn't sit down and read it cover to cover. I did flip through. A lot of it is just about his experiences as a, as a kid with this so-called brotherhood and how they, of course, had chosen him, you know, to be the purveyor of this information. But if you want it, I'll link, I have a link in the show notes, you can go to Amazon, you can get it, you know, three bucks, four bucks, uh, if you're interested in checking it out. Uh, I think there's plenty, there's plenty of copies, you're going to be fine. Uh, as an interesting side note to these Brotherhood beans, they did apparently fly around in dish-shaped craft, both the kind of on-earth and the uh, off-earth ones. Uh, these craft were really similar to the ones that George Adamski had photographed and talked about in the 1950s. Uh, it's interesting to note that because Kyinger apparently never had any contact with Adamski, and also a lot of the uh, Brotherhood descriptions would match Adamski's descriptions of the beans. So it's it's kind of interesting, you know, were the things that George Adamski saw back in the 50s, and if you're a UFO buff, you know about George Adamski. We might, uh, depending on if I can nail it down, we might pick on pick on that a little bit later in another episode we might do him. But, um, or was, was Kyinger, eh, I don't want to say stealing this idea, did he borrow <laughs> these descriptions? Because uh, as, we, as we will find out, maybe Kyinger wasn't as honest about things as he probably could have been, or should have been. Richard would go on to claim that he would occasionally have run-ins from these Brotherhood members. And this is a quote from... I, I want to stop here and mention that a lot of this information comes from the from the uh, UFO Archives blog by Hanken Blumkist, which uh, is, is phenomenal. Uh, once again, there will be a link to this, this blog post in the show notes, but check out everything. You'll find just so much interesting stuff to uh, read and just so many rabbit holes to fall down. But anyway, here's a, a quote from Richard from the UFO Archives blog. There hasn't been a large sampling of brotherhoods I've run into. They don't tell me what they do for a living, and their work for the brotherhoods may be quite separate from their everyday work as a, to earn a living. The one brother with whom I've had most contact is John, who I met in Arizona. I've seen the car he drives, but he doesn't show me the license plates. <laughs> Which, I don't I don't get it. I don't know, maybe it's like a men in black car or something. I mean, that's what he's getting at, but it's, it's a strange quote. But it gives you a little bit of an insight of the, to, to Richard Kellinger and how he thought and what he was talking about. 
but uh, we need to stop and talk a little bit before we go on about Lemuria, if people don't know what Lemuria is. And Lemuria is the name for a supposed lost continent, much like Atlantis. This lost land is said to have been a land bridge linking Madagascar and India. In 1864, biographer Philip Schulter proposed a theory in a book titled The Mammals of Madagascar. He noticed that there were lemur fossils in Madagascar and in India, but nowhere else. This led him to assume that India and Madagascar were linked by a landmass. This landmass became known as uh, Lumeria. And yes, Lumeria is... It's named after lemurs. Lemurs, Lumeria. But that's what that is, and it's a lot of people have, you know, glommed onto it uh, with a lot of different ideas about the people that live there and, you know, how it might have been this society that was way more advanced than anything we had at the time when we lost it and now we've been, you know, set back thousands of years and who knows, maybe aliens started. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff, but not for this show. But that's what Lemuria is and that's where he's kind of coming from this. Uh, the town started as an assortment of 25 homes along with sewage, water treatment plant, roads, utilities, a school, and the Stell factory. All of this was owned and built by members of the town. The factory itself had four divisions. There was Stell woodworking, Stell construction, Stell plastics, and, and, the, and the one that I find really interesting, the Stell piano shop. Kinder predicted that by the year 2000, 250,000 people would reside in Stell. Uh, but this never happened, mainly in part to its location. It, it was out kind of in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't close enough to any sort of place that had a good group, a good grip on jobs. And the, you know, they just didn't have the infrastructure to uh, make it happen. And of course, you had to be a member of the Stell Group. It was a closed community. You couldn't just move in there and start living. You had to be a member of the Stell Group and. There were, from what I've from what I've read, there were pretty stringent uh, membership applications to get in there. So that those two things really hindered the town's progress and its growth. The largest Stell would ever get would be 200 people. That was at its peak, and like I said, to this day, there's about a hundred-ish uh, that reside there. In 1975, Kellinger would again be ousted from another community. This one, he helped create. And that is Stell. Uh, he was kicked out for the most, most of the same junk that these quote-unquote uh, cult leaders always get kicked out for. You know, he he kind of just lied about everything, and people I think saw through it pretty quick, especially the people in Stell. Um, he took liberties with a lot of rules that he probably set up. He took liberties with many of the women in the community if you know what I mean and uh, after only what did I say 72 he started this so it was so that's what three years that's three years and they uh, want him gone they kick him out and he leaves but that wouldn't be the last the world were here of Richard Kellinger because he would go on to start another community he would try it again and that would be down in Adelphi Texas and that's going to be part two of tonight's episode. (laughs) 
So like I said, wouldn't be the last we heard of Richard Kellinger. Uh, after he was turned away from Stell, in the mid-70s, he ventured down south, just outside of Houston, Texas, where he set up another community based on the Lemurian Brotherhood teachings. This place would be dubbed Adelphi. As I stated earlier, Kyandra was kicked out for a myriad of reasons. Uh, allegedly he abused power often, he had many inappropriate relationships with uh, the young women in the community, and he pretty much lied about everything. One former resident of Stell, Walter Cox, had some, th Walter Cox had some things to say about Kyandra. And here's another quote. This is also from the Blumkis Vogue, but I believe these are taken from the from a podcast series uh, about uh, residents in Stell. And I will link to that podcast series in the show notes. It's not really one that you can subscribe to via iTunes and stuff like that. Kind of have to go to the website and just stream it from there. But if you're interested in this topic and you really want to take a deep dive, then the uh, Stell Experience podcast is the resource you really need to be looking into. But here's what Cox had to say about Kyinger. To sum it up, I would say that Richard Kyinger showed less respect for the truth than any person I'd ever met. He lied about everything, large and small. He lied when there was no reason to lie. He lied to avoid the natural repercussions of his actions. He lied to his wife, his many girlfriends, his daughter, and every friend he ever had. Does that mean that I think the philosophy in the ultimate frontier is false? No. I think the philosophy itself is sound, and I am thankful Richard wrote the book. However, was Richard making it all up? Cox also had a, a very interesting story to relate. He tells the story of a friend named Victor. Uh, not his real name, it was an alias used by Cox. And this guy was also a resident of Stell. But we're going to talk about Victor for a little bit, just because it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but it really gives you insight onto what uh, this was all about. Victor was a member of the Still community for a long time. It would be in 1980, and at this time the community was still following the Brotherhood, even though Kyandra was gone. It wouldn't be until like 1982 when they would uh, put out a referendum and become just a more of a homeowners or say, uh, wow, a homeowners association, and they would leave all of that. Uh, frontier stuff, all that Brotherhood stuff, all that Lemurian stuff behind and just become this community focused on being sustainable and being themselves. But uh, back to Victor. Victor became disillusioned with Stell and what it stood for. One night he would pray to both the Brotherhood and to God, asking them if it was all real or if he and his family were wasting their time. Had he made the wrong choice? The next morning he got a phone call. The voice on the other end had this to say. Hello, I'm calling in reference to your request for more information. I'm calling to answer your questions about Richard Kyinger and the validity of your presence in Stell. Perhaps we can arrange a meeting. Victor accepted and the meeting was set up and a few days later a large Mercedes pulled up to his home. An elderly Asian man got out followed by a young man who looked to be around 15 or so. It was actually the boy who did the talking, the old man just stayed in the car. He told Victor that this was his first assignment from the Brotherhood and he had some important information to relay. The info Jim had for Victor concerned Kyinger. Victor was told that as a boy Kyinger was indeed contacted by the Brotherhood, but later they realized that he would misuse the information given to him. Because of this, 
so-called keepers were assigned to Kinger for a damage control. So he had he had uh, referees out there from the Brotherhood trying to keep him in line as best they could. Doesn't look like they did like a tremendous job of it. Jim encouraged Victor to take on a more leadership role in Estelle. Victor was assured that the Brotherhood had Estelle's best interest in mind, and the community was on the correct path. Because of this, Victor decided to stay. And it doesn't really stop there. Years later, in the 90s, Victor was able to track Jim down via the internet. Victor had once again started to doubt Stell's purpose. And once again, Jim reassured him. Even though Jim was very taken aback, very surprised that Victor was able to find him. Later, Victor would try to contact Jim a second time. This time, however, he had no such luck. All the information he had for him was dead. Uh, the phone number, everything. He just disappeared after that. He was never able to get a hold of him again. And that's the story of Victor. And uh, make what you will of it, but it, it's intriguing, to say the least. And if it's true, then maybe there is something to what Kinder is doing. Maybe Kinder just wasn't, wasn't the man for the job. Uh, Adelphi was established in 1976, and while it strived to be Kinder's second chance at his grand plan, it would never surpass the initial success of Stell. Even with the people that followed him from Stell to Adelphi, Adelphi would only be 100 members or so strong at its peak. Kinder would once again be kicked out of the community he started. In 1989, the Adelphi organization, which I'm assuming is the same as the Stell group, but just for Adelphi, sued Kyinger and had him removed from the board. And I'm not sure why. I linked to... They sued him. They brought him to court. There's a link in the show notes of the documents that he... of the court proceedings. And I found one little bit of information about how he was involved with some sort of uh, bank scheme, but I couldn't find any real information on this bank scheme. It had a name, and when I googled it, you just got banks in Houston or something. So I don't know if those two are connected. I feel like they are. I think it was a combination of this bank scheme that he was a part of and probably more of the same stuff that he was doing in Stell that got him once again uh, kicked out of his own community. And he would die in 2002. Adelphi, like Stell, still carries on today. However, unlike Stell, which distances themselves from the Brotherhood teachings, Adelphi still holds strong to them. Today, Adelphi's population is 16, and that really is the thing. You have these two communities started by the same person. One community does everything they can really to distance themselves from their past. Even if you go and read their Wikipedia page, you can... Like, they talk about it, they acknowledge it, but they really play it down. It's almost... It was written very carefully, I think. So whomever is running that kind of Wikipedia page has to be from the community. Whereas Adelphi is still Lemurian Brotherhood, and you have to be a member, and da-da-da, da-da-da. It seems like a lot of people... Which is also very cult-like, you see. A lot of them still believe in the message. They just don't believe in the person that gave them the message. And that's what we're seeing here. 
is that and I mean really maybe that's good because it could have ended up like a lot of other cults but you know these people had the wherewithal they still were you know he wasn't one of those leaders that just brainwashed everyone apparently and just took everything they had he I don't think he was really out to be a quote-unquote cult leader he wasn't out to just take everybody's money and amass all this power he wasn't trying to be a Jonestown. He wasn't trying to be an Om Shinrikyo. He was just... he. I think he really did have a message, and I think it just went to his head, because you see that the people... It doesn't take long that the people that he has gathered, uh, they don't put up with his shit, quite frankly, and they they turn on him and they take the power back. So... They're both so both both places are still around. Like I said, you want to get into Delphi, you gotta join. Um, if you go there and you join and you're and you're and you're member number seventeen, drop me an email. Uh, Stell, like I said, it's just a homeowners association. Uh, I've linked to their website. I think they're both of their respective websites, and you can look at uh, you can look at uh, houses that they have for sale in Stell. Not terrible prices to be honest, but keep in mind you're out in the middle of nowhere and. You have to help raise barns, and they have their own internet, which could be amazing. Could be terrible. I don't know. But those are the two. Um, you know, check out the book. Really check out that podcast series. I mean, there's there's a myriad of things. Also, if you have a, a plus membership to Mysterious Universe, they do an excellent plus episode on this. It's a bit old. I think it's getting ready to go into the archives. It is episode. Uh, 1915 of plus that's a great episode to check out on this topic as well but i really wanted to get more into the towns and where they went but that is our main meat for episode one of season two we're going to be back after the break with the local headlines as we always do so i'll see you i'll see you you'll hear me actually in a couple of seconds i'm going to take a break but you won't know because it's a podcast that I treat like a radio show, even though it isn't. I'll be back.
and we're back and yes i know that's not new music um, i am working on a couple of new pieces for season two i don't really make a habit of trying to like oh we gotta make music for the show it's just when i get around to dabbling into it and go oh this is going somewhere then i've got a new piece i don't try to like adhere to that uh it's just a fun thing to do it's something to just grab the ipad and plug it in the logic pro and start hitting keys and messing with stuff and make a couple pieces of music for the show or whatever but let's do some local headlines the first one is from coast to coast of course written by tim banal uh the headline reads watch and there's a youtube video that you can watch when you do i'll link to it in the show notes like i always do on ufo cluster spotted in texas a driver in texas was left scratching her head after spying a strange cluster of dark objects hovering in the sky the weird sighting reportedly took place in the city of Odessa this past Tuesday, and the unnamed motorist was stopped at a red light. While waiting for the signal to change, she gazed up in the sky and noticed the puzzling aerial anomalies. The witness initially suspected that the oddities were simply balloons or birds, but she began to doubt that assessment when she noticed that the, one of the objects appeared to flash. Unfortunately, the light eventually turned green and so the witness was forced to leave the scene, to her credit, she did try and turn her car around to see if she could spot the UFOs again. As for what the weird UFOs could have been, aside from the armada of alien craft cruising over Odessa, there are a handful of uh, prosaic possibilities that have been forwarded by viewers. On the, on the fantastic end of the spectrum, some have postulated that perhaps the anomalies are clandestine government test craft. Meanwhile, more down-to-earth observers have argued that the UFOs are just paragliders. What's your theory for the source of the puzzling dark objects? Let us know on the Coast to Coast AM Facebook page. And uh, uh, Texas is not the only one having UFOs flying overhead. Actually, I think there was another uh, sighting somewhere in the U.S., but it was quickly debunked as being something not UFO at all, so I didn't do it. But this one is coming from the good old mysteriousuniverse.org. Bizarre dancing fireball UFO filmed over in England for a second time. Uh, this is written by Sequoia Kennedy. How would you feel if you looked out your window and saw a giant ball of fire doing loops across the sky? That's got to be one of the most unnerving types of UFOs to see. An alien spaceship might be a little reality shattering, but at least there would be a little bit of context. It's a real world vehicle, but at least you know what vehicle. A big ball of fire, apocalyptically pirouetting over a small English town though, that's just plain odd. The latest mysterious fireball was seen in the skies over Northampton, England. Luke Palsy, 20, spoke to the Northampton Chronicle and Echo about the video of the bizarre event. Filmed by his friend, Lauren Tester, at her home. You can watch the video for yourself here, and there's a link uh, to go check it out. The footage is short, only a few seconds long, but it shows a large flaming object doing loops in the sky. You can even see the smoke from the previous loops faintly to the right of the fireball, indicating that in fact, it's a literal great ball of fire. Lou Palsy says he doesn't believe that the fireball was man-made or a weird type of lightning. He believes that it in some way was alien. Palsy says, I think it's an unidentified flying object. But when people imagine that they think of a spaceship, which I don't think it was, but how do we know what but how do we know what's out there? Especially if it doesn't exist to us. It could be aliens, but I don't want to say for certain, as I don't know. Strangely, it seems that Palsy and Tester are the only witnesses to the bizarre event. 
Palsy says it's hard to believe that no one else saw the dancing, the dancing fireball in the sky. It's baffling, and it really is a mystery. That's why I'm so interested in it. No one knows what it is, and by the time you get someone to look at it, it's gone. Yet this isn't the first time a big, ridiculous, and unexplained fireball has appeared. It's not even the first time it's happened in Northampton. In 2014, a video was posted online of what can only be described as probably the same thing. 11-year-old Katie Reel filmed a looping fireball UFO over Northampton as her parents watched. Fiona Fearon, Katie's mom, said in 2014, Initially we thought it could be a plane on fire, but it appeared to be dancing across the sky. It was an amazing sight. It's very weird. Our children were very excited by it. It looked like a ball of fire moving around the sky. Often mysterious fireballs and dancing lights are explained away with two words, ball lightning. The problem with that is, although it's a term composed of two words, we know ball and lightning. Science still considers ball lightning to be an unexplained phenomenon. It's called a type of lightning because it's associated with thunderstorms, sometimes, and because it looks like, probably, electric in nature, but the list of proposed explanations for ball lightning is long and ridiculous. I've seen ball lightning one time, and due to its extreme rarity, science has never been able to study it under controlled conditions. No one knows what it is, and using an unexplained phenomenon to explain away an unexplained phenomenon seems like the definition of madness. But it's understandable that folks would be looking for something to make a giant dancing fireball seem a bit more mundane. No matter what name you give it, it's still a, di a giant dancing fireball in the sky. It is an interesting video. Um, they're very far away from it. You just see what it almost looks like someone has a big sparkler or like a big torch and they're just waving it around in the sky. Uh, so yeah, check out the MU article and then it links to the kind of original article and that's where the video is. Uh, this last story is has really been making the rounds the past week. It's gone from kind of quirky story to almost, they, people have almost made it a cryptid. Uh, I think they're doing it tongue-in-cheek, but I've seen out there of illustrations of, hey, look at this new new thing we got. And this is coming from 6 ABC Action News. This article is written by anyone. I don't see a name on this one. And this is man wearing TV on head caught on camera leaving old TVs on Virginia front porches. Henrico County, Virginia. Residents living in a Virginia neighborhood woke up to find free televisions on their doorsteps. It sounds like a great gift until you see they are older box sets left at the homes. He is committed to his trade, said homeowner Jim Brooksbank. No need to adjust that dial. Doorbell surveillance cameras capture the man with a TV set over his head, lying an older TV set down on someone's front porch, and just watch walking off. He wants to be known as the TV Santa Claus. I don't know, Brooksbank told WTVR-TV. The bizarre discovery happened Sunday morning in Henrico's Hampshire neighborhood. Outed boxes were found on more than 50 homes. We've got an old tube-style TV, 13-inch, said Brooksbank. I thought my son had brought it home, but apparently not. They had way too much time on their hands if all they had were these TVs and spread them all over the neighborhood, said homeowner Michael Kroll. Henrico police are tuned into the situation. They have security camera video from multiple neighbors but think it's only a prank targeting no one in particular. At most, it seems to be a more inconvenience to the community, said one officer. Officers and county workers spent Sunday morning picking up the old units and hauling them away. 
The police did a great job of coming up and collecting them all, said Brooks Bank. This is the second time the TV set mystery has played out. In Glen Allen, the same thing happened in a different neighborhood last August. I think it's just a prank. Some college students who are just bored, said Kroll. It's summer, and people are getting ready to go back to school. Maybe TV Man was just ready to strike and put a little humor in our lives, said Brooks Bank. In the absence of knowing the brains inside the box, these homeowners are only left to guess what it all means. According to Henry Coe Police, the only real crime committed was illegal dumping. And that has been this week's local headlines. We will return after the boom uh, with, of course, a couple of little listener stories and finish up this episode. And we've got two uh, little stories, nothing big, but little and fun. Uh, the first one is from Reddit, and they asked to remain anonymous, so I'm just going to call them Reddit user. And this is from outside of Eureka, California. Before Christmas 1996, maybe 1997, I was driving from Eureka, California to Los Angeles, which is a bit of a drive. I bet it's I bet it's nine hours. I bet it's ten. It's. Oof. I left early around 4 a.m., well before sunrise. I hadn't been driving an hour, but I was deep in the Redwood Forest on Highway 101. It was still complete darkness. A tribe called Quest was playing on loudly on the cassette. The only light was coming from the headlights on my car. Then, in my peripheral vision, I quickly caught the light in the rear view mirror on the highway behind me. Suddenly it caught up, and with a powerful glowing light shined down on the car. I felt just an instant flash of, see- of sleep paralysis something I hadn't felt since I was 12 or 13. The light moved on ahead of me, and I saw a cone of light illuminating down from a small, bright source. It moved forward on the road in front of me, and then all over the tall redwood trees and out of sight. Fucking logging helicopter, I thought, and not much else. I finished the drive to Los Angeles, spent Christmas with the family. Everything was pretty uneventful. After New Year's, I drove back up to Eureka, but when I got home, something was different. Around those years, I was a nerd about time and punctuality. My watch, my alarm, clock, VCR, stove, car clock, and wall clock were all synchronized. I got into my apartment and noticed my watch was 12 minutes slower than all the clocks in my apartment. I went down to the car and turned it on. The clock on the dash matched my watch. I went back to the apartment and called for the time. My watch and car were synchronized at 12 minutes slow. Maybe it wasn't a logging helicopter after all, I thought. And I, I like this story because it has missing time, but the car also had the time. So it, you know, it's like he was in this bubble of missing time and everything that was in the bubble, the car included also, you know, so... Was he abducted? If he was abducted, he was abducted with the entire car or something happened to that effect. It was just very, you know, it was more than just missing time because he has, he, you know, he was able to kind of synchronize it and find it out and be like, you know, just the fact that the car was also missing the same amount of time really lends to uh, a, a what-the-hell moment on that one. And this next one is from... Uh, Bree Havy, I think is how you say her last name, from Jamestown, Rhode Island. 
and she wrote in with uh, a little story and she sent some pictures of the place she's talking about uh, I'll put a couple a uh, few select ones on in the show notes and I'll probably maybe I'll post them all on uh, Instagram or something so you guys can take a look but she wrote this in my mom married a guy when my parents got divorced and that moved us to a small Rhode Island town of Jamestown I was a teenager here and did a lot of teenagerly things a local hangout spot for delinquents was an abandoned military fort known as Fort Weatherhill. No, I'm sorry, Weatherhill. It's a real cool spot made out of concrete, most of it underground. Kids go there to smoke pot, graffiti things. We had a small problem with people sacrificing cats to Satan in one of the downstairs rooms at one point. It was a whole thing. A local fraternity hazes new members in that room now. It's calmed down, been cleaned up. People hike there now. Kids still do drugs. But anyway, when I moved to Jamestown, all the locals would warn you about a demon dog that haunted the ruins. Different people had different accounts. Someone said it was a hellhound. Others said it was a werewolf. Regardless, we were always warned never to go out at night. I have obviously been at night, and it's gotten a little wild. Here's a link to the story to give you some history. And she did. She linked to a news article from the Yankee Express. Uh, let's take a look at it. If it's not too long, maybe I'll just read it. It's not too bad. Uh, this is from the Yankee Express, The Phantom Dog of Fort Rutherwell, by Thomas D'Augusto, and this is from Haunted, Rhode Island. A demon dog is known to wander among the ruins of Fort Rutherwell in Jonestown, Jamestown. I keep wanting to say Jonestown. Jamestown, Rhode Island. Witnesses have seen the wraith approaching them with its glowing red eyes and white fangs protruding from its gaping mouth. Whether or not those who have gazed upon the creature have met with an untimely death has not been ascertained. The origin of the dog is not clear as well, but one can trace it back to the time when the English controlled the fort during the American Revolution. Accounts of these hideous creatures are abundant in Great Britain. One such animal is called the Muth Dug, I think, it's got two O's in it, and is known through history to haunt the Castle Peel on the Isle of Man. The very sight of the dog was a harbinger of death. A guard once saw the dog in a corridor and was so frightened by the sight he died a few days later never recovering from his ordeal. Another guard entered the office within the castle and saw the same dog on a chair grimacing at him. The apparition was so horrifying that he succumbed to death moments after the shrieks reverberated through the castle. Sentries of the castle, I'm sorry, sentries of the castle, like sentries, like guards, now know to avert their eyes when they see the shadow of the phantom in the view, or they turn their head in the opposite direction for the fear that the same fate might be bestowed upon them and many of their comrades. Other such omens of death reside in areas of Norfolk, Essex, and Suffolk, along the hills and coastlines of the United Kingdom. He has also known the Rome graveyards and the country roads for centuries. Villagers gaze upon the ghastly canine known as the Black Shuck, and have never lived to tell the tale about their encounter with the deadly demon. When the British took control of Jamestown Hill during the American Revolution, it was known as Dumpling Rock. Colonists had made crude earthwork walls on the rocky hill to control the eastern passageway into Newport. They occupied the fort until July 30th, 1778, when the French gained control of the harbor. The British fled and destroyed the fort, but took it over again a month later. It stayed under their control until October 25th, 1779, when they hastily abandoned the fort without explanation. Whether or not the Black Demon had anything to do with it is not written, but something other than the armed forces made them hastily retreat that position. A better fortress was erected and called Fort Dumpling, or Fort Louis, as some referred to it in honor of the King of France. They soon abandoned the fort unexpectedly. 
It was not until 1899, 100 years later, that the United States government expanded the fort and put disappearing rifles into the cement embankments and renamed it Fort Rutherwell. It was then put into caretaker status until World War II, but once again, it was mysteriously abandoned. The state acquired the property for public use on August 16, 1972. Now, the only original dweller of the fort is the black dog that roams the area looking for those who will gaze into its fiery eyes. Barking has been heard from inside the walls of the fort, yet investigators always prove the structure is empty of any living creature. He is also seen walking through the walls and steel doors of the fortress as if they did not exist during his original tenure at the hill. The phantom dog is nomadic and chooses its victims at random. Those who unexpectedly run into the demon are sure to experience the worst of fates. So if you find yourself at Fort Rutherwell State Park, perhaps you might want to avoid calling the dark pooch with glowing eyes you see in the distance wandering among the ruins. And like I said, she sent me a bunch of pictures. I will probably put them all on Instagram and I'll link, like I said, I'll link a couple in the show notes, a couple of the more intriguing ones. But that has been listener stories for this week's episode. And that means it's also uh, the end of the show. And I would like to thank everyone for taking the time to listen. Um, if you like the show, if you like what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and uh, wait, what is it? Rate, review, and subscribe. I knew I was messing something up. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your uh, player of choice, especially if it's iTunes. Uh, what else we got? If you have a story for the show, there are a bunch of ways to get it to me. If you go to stscast.com, where you can find all sorts of goodies such as uh, episodes, all the sources, all the links to anything we've covered, all the pictures I've got are on there, merch is on there, ways to support the show are on there. But also at the bottom of the main page, there is an email form where you can uh, email me, send me your story or any questions you have. You can also get on social media, uh, Twitter and Facebook, both use the same uh, the same name, it's at stscast. I'm also on Instagram. That one is uh, stscast.gram. I'm most active on Twitter. So if you have a story, you can also uh, find me on there and get it to me. Also, if you're a Reddit user, there is a Reddit. I have a subreddit that is entitled, I've, I've actually forgotten what it's called. I'm going to have to look it up. STS Listener Stories. You can go and join and you can... Uh, get in there and leave leave some stories and we can talk about them and we can do all sorts of great things in there. Uh, like I said, uh, there are other ways to support the show. Just tell a friend. Word of mouth works the best. Get on social media. Go, hey, I like this. Here's this new episode. It's really great. Retweet some stuff. Like some stuff. You know, um, you can get on the website. You can buy merch. You can go support Big Heads Media. They also have uh, merch for the show through them. Uh, you can check out the Dirty Knees Soap Company link. All that helps the show, helps it to keep going. I can't thank everyone enough for the support and the listens and just all of all of that stuff that has come uh, from doing this show. And season two is off and started with, I think, a pretty good episode. Way longer than I thought it was going to be. I really didn't think. I was like, man, I don't have a lot of stuff on uh, Adelphi, Texas. Like there just wasn't a whole lot of information out there, but I think it all came together and this has been one of my, this has been a good one and I'm, I'm happy to get it wrapped up and out for everyone to listen. So 
Until next time, remember that every town has a secret. What is yours? The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.